Friday the 21st of December 2012. You are listening to episode 10 of the It's a Monkey podcast. This is the last podcast for 2012. It is 21st of December in Sydney, Australia. The world is still standing. I don't even want to talk about that issue um, because it is um, a bit saturated in the media at the moment. There's still a few hours across the world where the world could end. So, <laughs> yeah, Well, uh, we, we, we won't even go there. Thank you for joining us. We have a terrific show planned for you today. We have a very special guest. We have an interview with Clive Hamilton. Uh, Clive Hamilton, or Professor Clive Hamilton. He is a professor of public ethics and um, at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics. And he is a best-selling author of all sorts of interesting books about capitalism and consumerism and steady state economics um, he's um, probably the most famous book that you might have heard of particularly if you're an Australian listener it's a book called growth fetish and also affluenza both were on the best sellers list and we had an interesting chat to him about steady state economics um, technological determinism and you know happiness what makes us happy uh, why is it that we have so much technology and yet we seem to have so much unhappiness and uh, other problems, um, socioeconomic problems? So that would be that's going to be really interesting. That's coming up a little bit later. And as usual, we're going to kick off with some news, some IT, tech, internet, tech economy related news. James, first story interesting this week. Twitter finally allowed users or is slowly rolling out users i believe not many have it yet the ability to download all their tweets from tweet number one yeah essentially it's a uh, it's a big zip file containing all of all of their tweets so um it contains uh i guess the data formats it's got a csv file and a javascript format so it's basically sort of formatted tweets that um you could in theory upload to another program um, and it also kind of comes with a nice nice formatted web page as well so it's um, you can kind of very quickly browse through your tweets and uh, and and drill all the way back to the first tweet that you've ever made um, uh, you you can obviously currently access quite a lot of historical information just on your own account through Twitter but there's there's a limit on Twitter and through the API of about 3,000 tweets so if you're a regular tweeter um, essentially, that information was was lost until right now. So, um, yeah, that that's really the the interesting aspect of it. I guess is sort of opening up access to the those older users. Why do you think people want to download their tweets? Uh, maybe it's maybe it's the backup factor. Maybe it's the. I mean, it it also enables you to search through them as well, which is which is obviously quite interesting. So, if you said something you know three years ago that you want to find out, currently, there's there's no practical way to do it. Um, so I guess this enables that. Um, there's probably peace of mind factor as well. You know, you just want to have a backup in case Twitter, you know, blows up tomorrow or becomes a paid server, something like that. So some people tweet a lot. Mm. I mean, there are some people with that I follow with with tens of thousands, some over a hundred thousand tweets. Yeah, well, one of I think one of our accounts has over a hundred thousand. That that spell account. I mean, admittedly, it's not all. Uh, we haven't tweeted that, but. Um, that's uh, if you're listening uh, and you're a Twitter fan, you might want to check out one of our um, Twitter bots underscore spell, which James actually conceptualized and built this terrific Twitter account slash Twitter bot that actually picks up when people 
are unsure how to spell a word on Twitter and they put the SP question mark behind a word in a tweet, our Twitter bot picks it up and actually tweets them the correct word. So it's a really nifty service that gets used quite a lot. I'll put it in the show notes. So how many tweets is that sent out? It's up to uh, 500,000. Okay, but but that is a bot though. So a bit unfair, yeah. It It would be kind of cool to download it though and have a record of it all. Yeah. What I find really interesting with historical Facebook data and historical Twitter data, I mean, have you ever sat down and dug into your Facebook or your Twitter of a few years ago and actually just browsed? Yeah, no, not really, no. It's quite interesting because you do, it does work as a bit of a de facto diary Mm. in a way. And I mean, I never met any of my grand fathers for instance now if Mm. if i would for instance have access to my grandfather's facebook account account or twitter account i would find that i mean that would be priceless to me that would be i'd be absolutely fascinated about what they went through Mm. their thoughts their their life journey i would i would literally uh, probably um you know analyze every single tweet would be fascinating for me so i think in future generations I think that the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram, we in a way, we're going to be leaving quite an interesting legacy for our kids. Assuming that data, there is some data uh, portability, there is some data continuity, and these things don't just evaporate. Yep. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. I, I'd love that kind of thing as well. So I guess it's a, it's a, it's a good reason to not delete your Facebook account when you're done with it. You just, just leave it there and it comes kind of a memento for future generations yeah i think you know a lot of people are critical of facebook of uh, you know it's consuming people's lives and it's narcissistic etc etc but i think life casting and um for your you know your future general documenting your life in a way is is an interesting concept I, w- I wonder if there is a service that does that 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 i guess archives all of your twitter and facebook posts or your all of your social network posts you know for the purpose of displaying them in the future because I mean, I guess you can't really rely on Twitter or Facebook being around in a hundred years, and you know these face, you know these these companies do tend to disappear unless you're actively building a service to provide that information in the future. Um, you know, it has the probability that's probably going to get lost. So I can imagine that kind of service would, be, would get quite popular over time. I think probably if people are interested in preserving uh, this information for the future, what wouldn't be a bad idea is finding some service that actually every few years you get your tweets and your Facebook information printed or bound into a book. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, and so you've got a digital and hard copy, hard copy yeah. and you know books, and then I've just recently <laughs> moved, and you do discover pieces of paper and information from a few years ago that digitally may be buried somewhere, but. Uh, um, I'm just imagining my uh, drunken teenage photos of parties in a, in a, ha- in a hardcover book passing on to my grandchildren. But. Yeah. Well, I think, I think even in your time, even though you're a bit younger than me, uh, luckily you were spared from that. So that's um, Twitter. You're able to download your tweets. If you don't see it on your account yet, don't panic. They have said they will be rolling it out slowly. I believe it's in the settings section. Um, yeah, essentially you... Uh, essentially you click on your cog icon at the top and um, there's a bunch of different level of settings and under the account settings option right down the bottom there's uh, an archive tweets button so we've got it on one of our one of our many twitter accounts so i played around with it um, it works pretty well the only thing is is that when you 
run the archive um, and you download it, you can't then rerun it again in the future. So it's kind of a once-off thing in the current current implementation. I mean, it's obviously very early days. They may they may change that in the future. Interesting. Um, one of Australia's universities, a Sydney university, is going to roll out 11,000 Apple iPads. All new students who enroll at the University of Western Sydney in 2013 receive an iPad as part of a massive rollout today. The university said in a statement it would distribute 11,000 iPads to each new student and all academic staff in 2013 to support learning and teaching innovations across the curriculum and in informal learning environments. Um, James, good to see that a Sydney uni seems to be acknowledging that the future has arrived yeah it's, it's interesting when I, I can i can i can see why they would do it um i mean if you do have ubiquitous use of a single device like like an ipad then you can build tools for the classroom you know that are kind of key to the learning experience and and know that everybody will be able to use them so if you could build an app for you know a specific class or, or you know, a specific uh, department, then um, then you can see that that being fairly useful. I think higher education has been broken for a long time. Mm. You know, I think whoever you've you you spoke to of our generation or mine, yours, even some of the current, you know, stuff we have that that are studying at uni, it's broken in the sense of it's incredibly inefficient. The bad lecturers, the the the, the bad content. You you there's a huge amount of noise to get. A little bit of signal and technology has an amazing opportunity to really optimize that absolutely yeah I mean having said that I guess you know I do have a vaguely cynical reaction to it and that it almost seems a little bit like you know buy a new TV get an iPad along with it it's almost like a bit of a marketing marketing ploy I guess there's no doubt that's definitely uh, part of it Particularly because you know these devices, you know, six months they're going to be out of date if they're you know if they're buying the latest version and then they're you know they're going to be stuck with. I mean, I don't know if it's just given to the students or if it's owned by the faculty, but um, yeah, these things don't have a very long shelf life. So um, and there didn't seem to be any sort of terminology in there in terms of sort of long term plans for maintaining this stuff. So it's hard to know whether it's just you know entirely a sales gimmick to boost uh, you know enrollment numbers, but. I think ultimately it will be a BYO type environment. I mean, the yeah. workplaces are heading towards a BYO environment. We've seen it in our small workplace that over the last six months a year, um, people enjoy and prefer just having one device across work and home. And I believe even in the enterprise, um, a lot of the enterprises are coming up with policies of BYO device. And I would imagine university that's that's going to make some sense as well so i would imagine it's a little bit of a marketing uh, ploy but i i I, i'm really interested in the space i'm really interested to see you know i mean what technology does to education of course peter Thiel, one of the famous founders of paypal he had his program where he offers the super smart people to drop out of uni Mm -hmm. um, claiming that well if you're super smart and you want to get on with it uni is probably not the place to be yeah it's a it's a it's a bold bold philosophy there, but um, yeah. Well, I think particularly on the entrepreneurship side of things, there's definitely something in it, and um, uni teaches you to assess risk and to look at all sides of the problems, and sometimes that can actually be um, a negative in the entrepreneurial world, where mm. 
um, you're always going to find those. Yeah, <laughs> naivety and boldness. And I think Bono said, uh, when you're 16, you think you can take on the world, um, and you're right. <laughs> you know, and and I and, and I like that. So uh, the education space, we might see if we can find someone somewhere that's doing something and and believes that universities, you know, have an opportunity to reinvent themselves and I reinventing themselves. Final little news story for today: Facebook tests one dollar fee for inbox access. Really interesting story. Um, the small experiment will let some people pay to have a message routed to the inbox of someone they're not connected with rather than have it banished to the other folder. Now, most people, a lot of people don't know that there is an other folder in your Facebook inbox. Mm. And yeah, that, that folder, I think, uh, as, far as, as far as I understand, actually receives all the messages you get from people who you're not directly connected with. Um, and I think unless you set up any kind of special notification, you don't actually receive any notification for receiving those in messages. So. Well, you and I just before the show went through our other inbox. I went through my other inbox and there were messages there from people reaching out to me, mutual friends and the like, going back quite some time that I missed mm-hmm. that are probably going to cause me some social political fallout. Um, so there's a definite u- user interface breakdown in that they really didn't make it clear that there is another inbox or ping you in the right way when a message comes into your other um, inbox. But this initiative is interesting. They said a, a, new, a new revamp of Facebook messages is pointing the way to let people buy access to your inbox and in the social network. A small experiment starting today um, said it'll be evaluating, evaluating the usefulness of economic signals and give a, um, the, a number of people the option to pay to have a message routed to the inbox. This is sort of similar to their promoted posts in a way. It's a similar type of model where if you like a, a, a page, that page mm. can pay to pop up onto your feed. It's the same type of economic model. Yeah, it's interesting paying paying for access to people. Um, yeah, I guess it does operate in a very similar way because you're, you're kind of paying to access to more of your friends when you pay for a promoted post, whereas... Um, in this case, you're paying for direct access to people. Um, apparently, um, LinkedIn actually has a, a paid inbox service as well. Yeah, I think that's a. I mean, that's a. I think it's called InMail. Mm. I'm subscribed to that, where you get for X number of dollars, you can send people messages that you aren't connected to. Oh, okay. And well, I actually have used that with quite a bit of success. Hmm. Yeah, I can. I can see how that would be valuable. Yeah, definitely. Definitely makes sense. I mean, there's always been proposals, you know around email where you had to, you know, where people were sort of proposing you might have to pay to receive messages in your inbox for, for quite a while. I mean, none of those services really took off, but when it's a closed environment like, you know, something like LinkedIn or Facebook, um, yeah, you can definitely see the 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 opportunities for success right there for really helping to filter out the noise. The difference is with LinkedIn, you've got one inbox and it comes into your inbox. Mm. You have, if I remember correctly, you have an inbox and an invite section. With Facebook, with Facebook, there's something intuitively that doesn't sit right with me, both with the promoting the um, the fan pages and with this of you know being able to get into someone's inboxes. In a way, the incentive is the wrong way around somehow. Um, in one sense, if I'm self-interested to send you a message, right, you might not be interested in receiving the message from me, right? Right. So, for instance, on the fan page, it's like maybe I'm super interested in YouTube, mm. say, right? And say I happen to like 
um, I don't know, Waverley City Council, you know, which is, is near where I live. But Waverley City Council, for whatever reason, they're paying for the promoted posts. But I'm actually less interested in them. So the, 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 there's a misalignment of incentives there. That somehow it has to come from the other Both side. Directions. And it that's where Google's been so successful because AdWords you are really based on what you are looking for at mm. that moment, not really what the company is looking at. Yeah, doing. absolutely, yeah. It combines both signals. They almost need a method of, um, I guess, scaling the payment based on how interested you might be to receive the message. Or to pay on receipts or something like that. You yeah, pay, that'd be interesting, uh, yeah. You, you know, you pay on receipts. or, But it, it's sort of... I need to think about it more clearly to articulate it mm. better, but something yeah, seems to mean, be yeah. a little bit inverted on that. Yeah, it's all, all one way in the interest. They're like there's nothing nothing taking into account the person receiving the message's interest in you. And what happens, and the same with promoted posts, what happens if everyone starts promoting the posts, right? If everyone's paying $50, $50 to get in the news feed, it's, yeah, it's, it, a, it's not a scalable... A minimum, uh, yeah, it becomes like a minimum entry point then. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a scalable mm-hmm. model. So, um, yeah, it's uh, be interesting to see what happens with that. But anyway, if you are listening to us, check your other inbox because you may have some messages in there. I got, I got a very interesting message a few years ago when Facebook was first hitting critical mass. I received this email from someone with the same surname as me somewhere in the States. And she told me a long story. She said, hi, are you the Kevin whose father is this and mother that and you moved from Tallahassee to <laughs> Florida? And, and she went on explaining a whole uh, set of circumstances. And then um, the clincher was in the final line <laughs> where she said, we have the same father full stop <laughs> so she was looking for very a, dramatic yeah she was looking for her half brother and, uh, and for some or other reason had thought i was it which clearly i wasn't yeah. but it was quite interesting how how she worded this and this is we have yeah. the same father so i replied back and i said not like that i think <laughs> i think you've got the wrong person i live in australia and um nothing of the like but yeah check your check your other inbox because there might be some messages in your other inbox um, you're listening to James Peter and Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast, episode number 10, our special end of the world episode. Um, coming up, we'll be talking to Professor Clive Hamilton about steady state economics, technological determinism, why are we not as happy as we should be. Um, James and myself, we're the co-founders of a company called 89N. We produce products such as Manage, Flutter and Check dog we develop online products that solve niche solutions we do this podcast um, because we love tech we love talking about tech and um, gives us a little bit of a break to get away from from hacking away at our computers in the new year we'll be continuing with this podcast and uh, we have some exciting information to share at the end of the show about uh, one of our first guests but stay with us and after the break we'll be talking to professor clive hamilton the It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Thank you for joining us. You're back with us. Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. 
Um, I have a very special guest with me. As you know, we cover everything relating to tech and the tech economy. And one of my interests is economic growth, steady state economic growth theories worth, uh, versus um, perpetual growth um, theories. And I have a very interesting and special guest, an Australian guest who is actually a studio guest, which is uh, unusual for us. Most of our interviews are on Skype. Um, I'd like to introduce Clive Hamilton, and Clive Hamilton is very well known to our Australian listeners um, as an author. He's written books such as Growth Fetish, which is an Australian be bestseller, and books such as Affluenza. His most recent book um, is Requiem for a Species, and Clive, I believe a new book is, is almost off the presses. Yes, in late uh, February, early March. My next book will appear, and it's titled Earth masters the dawn of the age of climate engineering and it's about this big new thing coming down the highway at us plans to essentially take control of the earth's climate with grand technological interventions so uh, watch this space very topical and very important um, I mean, in, in, in our industry, there's a little dark secret about power consumption. I mean, we like to make it out that we all, you know, we all are aware of environmental impacts and we're modern, but there are these things called data centers, which uh, is where all the, 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 the powerful servers that drive Facebook and Twitter and Google, and they are huge consumers of energy. Yes, indeed. I've read about uh, Google, for example, establishing data centers often in the U.S. In, on the edges of remote and declining towns and having to build new power plants essentially to um, provide the energy to run those data centres, often gas-fired power plants. Um, and of course, gas is a fossil fuel. It's about half as bad as coal, but it's still bad. And so some activists in the U.S. have been putting pressure on Google and other uh, major uh, technology uh, uh, companies to, you know, get serious about uh, protecting the environment and to switch over to renewable energy. And because of the kinds of companies they are, obviously they don't want to be bracketed with the bad guys like Exxon and Dow Chemicals and Monsanto. They want to be the good guys who are looking to the future. So um, some of those tech companies are pursuing renewable energy and uh, and of course energy efficiency of course the best the best answer to greenhouse gases is to use less energy so energy efficiency is really crucial i believe some of them place their data centers next to hydroelectric dams to try get some uh, i would imagine that's one of the cleanest forms of energy hydro is uh, very clean uh, we have exploited our resources of hydro in australia did many years ago and have now pretty much used them up but of course building dams can have a very big environmental mm. impact as we all know so um so it's a it's a kind of double-edged sword when i invited you to speak on this podcast i was almost a little bit apprehensive because all these issues that that you sink your teeth into are, are very meta macro issues and I'm not quite sure where to start, but the one thing that I would like to talk with you about is we're very much influenced by Silicon Valley, um, you know, which is our, uh, you know, the wonderful narrative of, of starting something and having hyper growth. Um, and the growth is very much, it's almost like a religion there. It's, it's, it's all about growth, whether it's user growth or it's revenue growth or it's, it's impact. Um, and 
I know in some of your work that you've written about is, is very much that economic growth creates a consumerist mentality. Now, um, I'd, like, I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, in a society like ours in Australia or the United States or indeed pretty much any uh, affluent country, the truth is that continued sustained economic growth essentially depends on constant creation of unhappiness in consumers. I mean, if you think about it, um, the role of the advertising and marketing industries, and bear in mind these are vast industries, they have one essential function, and that is to make us feel dissatisfied, to make us focus on what we lack rather than what we have, and therefore to go out and buy stuff to fill the gap that the marketers have frequently created. I mean, there's no question at all that in 10 years' time, in five years' time, something uh, there'll be a whole bunch of items, including electronic computer-type items that we haven't even dreamed of and don't want and can't think they will make any difference to our lives. In five years, ten years, we'll desperately want them. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment and, again, basing it on Silicon Valley. And what inspires me about Silicon Valley is some of the people that have made a large amount of money on these hyper-growth type businesses are looking at creating a better world and meaning. You, know, um, you, you talk about the consumerism, I guess, um, draining the meaning in a way from, from the life. Is there mm. an argument to if, if the, the net benefits are then used um, for good? Does that perhaps offset the problems that, that, it, that it creates? I'll give you an example. Elon Musk, one of the founders of PayPal, he's formed SpaceX to, um, you know, the first private space exploration company to, to, to do some space exploration. He's done it out of his own pocket. Um, there's Peter Thiel, who's one of the PayPal founders, who's um, doing all sorts of interesting stuff. Some of the Twitter founders are investing in a company called Beyond Meat, that is creating meat, um, cultured meat that doesn't come from sentient creatures, mm. Mm. for instance. And they very much, what I find inspiring about Silicon Valley is that they talk a lot about meaning and impact. They actually don't talk about consumerism. They don't only talk about return on investment. Do you see the picture as a little bit more complex? Well, it is more complex, but I think we do need to separate out the kind of Silicon Valley talk and it's a, you know, it's a whole very distinct culture that is, um, in, in, in some senses, uh, there's a great abyss between the Silicon Valley kind of business culture and the traditional culture of American business. You know, if you think about the, you know, the big corporations and the suits and the way they operate and so on. And yet, you know, beneath, uh, beneath those differences, which are culturally significant, nevertheless, there is a fundamental driving force that comes out of the system in which they exist, and that is they have to maximise profits. I mean, our whole capitalist system is is based on uh, competition, very fierce competition in the tech sector, and those that don't compete uh, and beat their opponents uh, will not survive. And the truth is... You know, look, there are some, the growth of some industries is clearly more environmentally and culturally damaged than the, damaging than the growth of other industries. But there's a broader question of the extent to which growth is really in the DNA of the system. And when you look at, for example, and in particular greenhouse gas emissions, and you look at what's driving it, 
you know, there are three large forces that have an impact on our greenhouse gas emissions. The famous IPAT formula. The environmental impact is a product of population growth, um, the growth of affluence, which can be measured by GDP per person, um, and changes in technology. Now, when you look, when you analyse it, break it down to a numerical analysis, what you see is that the uh, consistent, sustained growth in greenhouse gas emissions in each country and around the world is driven by economic growth. And technology is constantly trying to offset that technology in the form of energy efficiency, uh, low emission technologies and so on. And the truth is that growth constantly overwhelms the technological advantages that we get. And of course we see this most in China and actually many people think that India in 20 years' time will be the bigger problem. So um, fundamentally, growth uh, is a problem in a, in, a, in, a, in a world that is constrained by resources and is constrained by the capacity to absorb our wastes. And the ca in the case of greenhouse gas emissions, that's the limits on the capacity of the atmosphere to absorb our wastes. And yet, no one officially is allowed to talk about the problem of economic growth. And every government will always say, we're committed to tackling climate change, but everything we do has to work around the number one priority, which is to maintain and increase the rate of economic growth. Okay, so talk to me about steady-staked economic theory. I think about this a lot because um, I get the, the logical conclusion that perpetual growth, just, you know, anyone can understand that in perpetuity is impossible. We cannot grow when based on finite resources in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. How do the same incentives and drivers for innovation, because I also believe passionately that innovation, um, you, you know, is the answer to a huge amount of problems. And I do love the fact that in parts of America, innovation is central to um, their commercial ecosystem. So how do you... It, you know, steady-state economic um, systems, how do you s still capture that innovation and those incentives and those drivers, perhaps that um, a, a perpetual or an unlimited growth system cap seems to capture so well via competition and returns on yeah. investment and yeah. things like that? Well, this is a huge and, and difficult question, so it's good that you, you pinpoint it. I mean, I, I just make some kind of general comments. First of all, I mean, I think... The drive to innovate, to create, um, is a is a human drive. Um, we get bored quickly, most of us, and so uh, uh, developing and looking for new things is something that humans do. We like to tinker, we like to develop, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, in advanced capitalist societies like ours, constant development, market growth, economic growth is driven more and more by innovation. Um, because that's become bound up into the way that companies compete. They didn't in the old days, even 30, 40 years ago, it was not true that companies competed mainly through innovation. They they competed through economies of scale, efficiency, getting the workers to work harder or more effectively, or even geography. Indeed, geography. Uh, but nowadays, in a in a in an advanced consumer societies like ours, is through innovation, through product innovation, basically persuading us to throw out that old old iPhone and get a new one, even though the old one's perfectly good and does 
the job that you want to persuade us to buy something new because it's got a few extra apps or applications and so on. And, and we have become kind of creations like that. So the point is that um, drawing uh, innovation into the process of capitalist competition um, certainly drives the innovation process, but I don't think it's fundamental to it. Uh, but it does distort it in a certain way. I mean, it's only those kinds of innovations that are going to appeal to consumer sentiment uh, that survive. And we've seen this. A big, you know, Governments now have to invest more and more in the kinds of innovations whose, uh, whose financial benefits cannot be captured by a private corporation. So when it comes, so what would a steady state economy be? Um, well, certainly the kind of innovation would would differ um, in ways that would be hard to predict. But I like to frame it in a different way. I mean, I've never, in a sense, been an advocate of a steady state economy. My view is that we should focus on the things that truly do contribute and advance individual and social well-being. And, uh, and to have the kind of society does, that does that um, and sort of let growth look after itself. And so if growth's you know, 3% or 0% or minus 1%, then that's not important as long as personal and social well-being are advancing. So we should be looking at growth in well-being. Uh, so, we, so we're looking at the wrong numbers, in essence. Absolutely, and that's why we developed this thing called the genuine progress indicator, which is a sort of, uh, which is an indicator, a single number that develops that that grows or declines year on year, but which captures a whole range of impacts on human well-being, not just growth in the economy, the volume or the value of marketed goods and services, but also environmental impact, unemployment, poverty, um, social cohesion. Uh, the impact on our well-being of factors like uh, gambling and indebtedness. So if we have a much more uh, comprehensive and coherent measure of what makes, us, what makes for a better society, uh, then we will find undoubtedly that economic growth becomes much less important because um, when you control for other factors, uh, you realise that Economic growth actually brings about a lot of bads as well as goods, such as um, climate change. How do you measure those other factors? Well, um, there's a lot of economics uh, that goes into it, and oddly enough, you know, my PhD is in economics, so I have some background in this. But for example, you know, if you take, for example, the if you want to include the cost of unemployment in your measure of social well-being. One way to do it would be to say, well, how much does society lose uh, by the lost productivity of those people who could be working? Uh, if you want to look at uh, uh, the contribution to society of our transport system, then you shouldn't just look at how much we spend on roads uh, and on buying cars each year. You should take away from that how much we spend offsetting the damage that roads and cars do. I mean, it's it's a fact that that uh, every time there's a car accident, GDP goes up mm. because people are spending more money and getting their cars fixed. Um, and GDP probably goes up during wars as well. It does. And well, one of the most dramatic illustrations, if we look at the costs of crime, it's been estimated that 
every murder results in the expenditure of an extra million dollars. That is uh, on police time, uh, on uh, the time of the courts, uh, catching the offenders, prosecuting them, putting them in jail. You know, it's a very expensive thing. And yet all of that expenditure uh, that is made in that year as a result of that murder uh, comes up in the national accounts as a contribution to GDP. Well, no one would think that a good way to improve national well-being is to increase the murder rate. Um, so you see you've got a lot of perversities in the way we measure our national well-being when we rely solely on GDP. I think also there's a projection onto um, consumerism of, and w w which, which isn't necessarily the, the ideology's fault, but there's a projection, an existential proje projection of our own desire to be happy or to have simple happiness. I mean, the, the, uh, I'm quite interested in the theories of happiness yeah. that which, and, and one of them is that when your income hits about, um, I think 70, 80, 90 K a year, um, your levels of happiness do then do not increase um, even though your salary is going up. Well, in fact, it's substantially less than that. Is that more, right? Yeah, it's more like 40 or 50,000 a year. It depends on whether you're measuring an individual or a household. But yeah, this is the great paradox of modern consumer capitalism. If you look back over the last, say, 50 years and you imagine a curve in your head or a, a line measuring GDP per person, it'll be constantly going up year on year except for a couple of blips when there's a recession and it'll go down for a year or two. So now, you know, I am probably in real terms three times wealthier than my grandparents were in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. If you look at measured happiness, well-being, life satisfaction in Australia or the United States going back 50 years, you'll see there's been no change. It's flat. So the gap between uh, our national well-being measured by GDP, which ought to be going up and up and up, and people's self-reported life satisfaction, which has been stable, then there's a wider and wider gap. You say, well, if that's the case, why are we putting so much emphasis on GDP growth? And then you can translate that into in, an individual term. So you see, if you look at the data, clearly having uh, you know, living in poverty for, for the most part makes you miserable, although we should bear in mind that some religious orders have, take a vow of poverty. But nevertheless, for most people, living in poverty is really quite a miserable thing. There are fewer life opportunities, you know, there's physical harm, there's illness and so on and so forth. Um, and so income up to... You know, it varies, 40,000, 50,000 maybe, definitely improves people's well-being. But beyond that, when you look at the figures, it doesn't make uh, much difference to people's uh, reported well-being at all. So you have to ask yourself, you know, and this is a puzzle for all of us, you know, somebody's living in a dirty big house in an expensive suburb, um, got everything they could reasonably want, and yet they they want more. They, they're, they're driven to have more. They look over their neighbour's fence and they think, that bastard's got a bigger house than I have. I want that. I must work harder. I must make more money. Well, that's the other interesting uh, point in you know the theories of happiness that I've read, that one of the predictors is if you're doing slightly better than your neighbours, mm. you're happy. It's all relative. <laughs> that's right. In fact, some studies have shown that – let me try and explain this. You have to keep four numbers in your head. If you ask people whether they would uh, – three numbers in your head. Well, ask yourself this question. Would you rather have uh, an income of, of $60,000 uh, when 
everyone else has an income of $90,000? Or would you rather have an income of $50,000 if everybody else has an income of $40,000? And most people would choose to have $50,000 because they'd be richer than everyone else than $60,000 because they'd be poorer than everyone else. So people would actually be a bit po- would prefer to be a bit poorer as long as they're richer than everyone else. And so, yes, it's relative incomes that really uh, make, make the difference. But even there, you know, some people, and we found this in our studies of the so-called downshifting phenomenon, there's a substantial portion of people in the United States, in Australia, in Britain, uh, who particularly before the recession in 2008, um, voluntarily chose to reduce their incomes uh, to make themselves poorer um, or less wealthy. Uh, because they felt it would make them happier, even though they became, you know, when they looked at their peers and their family, all of them said, you're mad, why are you giving up all of these things? But they said, no, this pursuit of money, this pursu- uh, above all else, is making me miserable. I'm going to change my lifestyle. And so I'm, go- I'm going to be less well-off, but I'm going to get a lot of other intangible things to more than compensate. Yeah, and I, th- and I think there's some recent studies that show youngsters these days... Um you know, when they ask, what do, you, what do you aim for in life? It's either fame or fortune. Yeah. I don't know if it's always been that way. Or it I don't, hasn't, it I hasn't don't remember been, when no. I was young. I, we, almost, we almost didn't, I know this sounds peculiar, but we almost didn't know what fame and fortune was. Well, it was something that happened to a small minority off somewhere else and was just not part of our domain. It wasn't part of our lives. We looked to you know, fulfilling jobs or careers and, you know, it was a question of whether you were going to be a bricklayer, you know, an architect or, you know, uh, something else. Um, so you may, but whereas now it's the end goal, it's, it's comparing oneself for young people with what they, you know, the images they see on TV. And it really is rather disturbing because the truth is the great majority of them aren't going to be rich or famous. Mm. Um, and even if they are, chances are they'll be deeply miserable. I mean, you know, one of the great joys, I shouldn't say this, uh, in life is actually we all like reading about the misery of the Mm. filthy rich. It's somehow a kind of vindication. uh, And yet that doesn't stop people aspiring to it. But there's another point I want to make, and that is about um, uh, owning stuff. I mean, you know, we have all of these gadgets, which are fantastic, like mobile phones and computers, and the computers are getting better and more powerful. But I sometimes ask myself, if you know, 30 years ago, when there were no mobile phones, were we less happy as a result? And, and the answer is always, well, no. See, once, be- once people become attached to something, they have trouble imagining their lives otherwise. The tricky thing is, if I may interrupt you, is that we can't disentangle all these technologies from each other. So if, if someone in this office collapses from a, from a stroke or a heart attack and we use the mobile phone to contact someone in the ambulance with the latest and greatest technology, saves their life and gives them another 20 years of life. Yep. There's a whole technology layer wrapped around that and all these innovations have fed off mm. each other. We can't sort of, the, the challenge, we, it's very hard to pick and choose what technologies, because there are some technologies that absolutely do make our lives easier, aeroplanes and, and MRI scans. and 
There's no doubt about that, but let, let, me, let me pose it in two different ways. Um, it's, 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 not the, it's not so much the t- technologies themselves, although it's partly that, it's our attachment to them. And so we're seeing this trend of people who, who are switching off you know, for a day or a week, making themselves uncontactable, not uh, checking their Facebook, their email, not tweeting, and not using their mobile phones. And, and in fact, going to places. There's now a, a niche in the tourism market where you have no contact with the rest mm. of the world. And it's proven quite popular. And it's because people see the way in which their their brains have been captured by this technology. And this can't be healthy if we become so dependent on it. And, of course, there are now studies coming through which are showing how use of this technology is, is literally rewiring the way our brains work in, in ways that aren't necessarily good for us, certainly don't make us more intelligent because they deprive of, uh, deprive us of certain ways of thinking, more reflective, deeper thinking. The other, the other uh, sort of challenge I'd put is this. Look, in f- 40, 50 years' time, uh, if, if we're lucky... Um, we will have sharply reduced our greenhouse gas emissions in electricity generation in industry in our homes and so on and so forth. But one area where it's proving much more difficult is in air travel. Mm. And the truth is, if, if we're going to get serious about air travel and le- uh, about greenhouse gas emissions, unless there's some huge innovation in, in, uh, in aviation fuels or plane manufacture or something... We're going to have to fly a lot less because flying is enormously polluting in carbon pollution. Now, okay, I mean, aeroplanes nowadays are like buses with wings. And we have to ask ourselves, well, let's say that in 30, 40 years' time, we could only fly on very special occasions because it's very expensive, there are limits, it's just too dangerous for the atmosphere to fly. Could we manage that? Would, no. we, would we be miserable? I mean, my, to, to expect humans to change their behavior where, when it's at a reasonable price point, just I think unless it's the absolute final hour of our demise, I, I think that people are not going to stop flying. The, the, benefits, the benefits are significant. So you think people would sooner see the world end than give up flying? Absolutely, I think I think unless it's really the final hour, I think then I think that's where the role of governments. I mean, that should be the role of gov- governments to even the playing field, to take visionary standpoints. If it's that if it's that high impact, then yes, we have to move the price mm. points, or we have to stimulate innovation, yeah. or both. But to expect people to change. Well, no, no, I'm not expecting people to <laughs> voluntarily make that change, uh, but. Um, you know, if 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 prices and availability doesn't change, but I, I would be expecting them in the face of overwhelming evidence. In fact, we have it already, but people are very slow to really take it on board that we're heading for a catastrophe with climate change and that we're going to have to change a whole lot of things. I will. I expect people. I hope sooner or later to vote for governments that say, "Sorry, we're going to have to restrict air travel." severely um, how they do it, you know, whether it's a quadrupling or, of airfares or whether it's some kind of, you know, uh, restriction on the number of planes that can land at Sydney Airport each day, something like that. 
to radically reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, who knows if that does happen? Maybe the airlines will come up with a uh, you know a renewable aviation fuel. Actually, they're already working on it because they can see the writing on the wall. Not next year or even in ten years, but certainly in thirty years, the airlines know there's a very strong chance they're going to be in severe trouble unless they can sharply reduce the greenhouse gas emissions for which uh, aircraft are responsible. Haven't they tested, um, had a test flight on ethanol or...? They've been adding a bit of ethanol to it, yes, and there are a lot of people working on on uh, creating uh, fuels from algae and various mm. other uh, innovations like that, but, you know, they're, they're lagging well behind. Um, but, you know, I, I, I fear you're right. I mean, the, whole, the thing about climate change is once we get to the 11th hour, the 11th hour is far too late because by then there's so much momentum and change it's, in the It's system. also human nature, though, isn't it, to wait until the 11th hour? Well, and that's the unique difficulty of climate change. It's, un, it's not like other environmental problems where we wait until it gets really bad and then we say, oh, hell, we better fix it and we can do something about it. Uh, you know, we're probably already locked into at least three, probably four degrees of warming, which would make you know, by about 2070, which will, you know, that now we really can't change. Uh, that will make the world hotter than it has been for 15 million years. And certainly outside of the climatic conditions that saw the evolution of modern life forms. So that's where we're headed. Uh, the science has been there strongly for a long time, and yet we collectively find it extremely difficult to respond to to the scientific warnings why why is that well i mean i even ask myself that question why why do we find it so i fly i use power i'm aware of it i wish i had more options i wish there was something that i could do um i feel that my footprint is probably lower than than many people but why why don't i even take it more seriously well, um, first of all, I think we need to, in a way, separate out our capacity to act as individuals. And, you know, like you, I think about it and I take various measures, although everything I do in my home and my Prius and so on is completely blown away you know, when I get on a plane and fly to Europe. Um, but really, this is, in the end, a collective problem. I mean, what is always going to matter more is which governments we elect you know, and once we start electing governments that say we're going to radically reduce greenhouse gas emissions over the next 10 years and we're all going to have to change our lives, um, then we'll be acting collectively to do what needs to be done, whereas we, as we individuals... Need some, we need some form of competition. I mean, the, I mean, we, we landed on the moon because of the politics between Russia and America, right? And that was an incredible series of innovations that just... That just drove things forward at an incredible pace. Yes, but at the, but you have to ask why. It wasn't it wasn't done for the sake of competition. It was done because But that it, was the driver though. Well, no, no, it was it was national pride and survival that was the driver. Mm. You know, as in the true. So it was really aiming at uh, at that and in a way we've got some of that competition coming through now. You know, China has embarked on a major uh, innovation drive in renewable energy and they basically want to wipe the US and everybody else off the innovation map. They want to supply renewable energy technology to the world. And, you know, they're, they're doing it, you know. I mean... It's a smart strategy. <laughs> it's a very smart strategy and uh, they're succeeding. I mean, it's like in 1970s Germany, the government introduced uh, the, by far the world's most stringent 
air pollution and water pollution regulation. And industry howled and whinged and carried on. The government said, no, we're going to do it. And so, so within five to ten years, it was German manufacturing companies that, that um, developed the technology to sh- reduce, to clean up the air and water. And then for the next 20, 30 years, they were by far the dominant exporter around the world of, those, of that machinery which purified air and water, and they made an absolute killing, as other countries followed with similar kinds of environmental uh, regulations. So China will probably dominate uh, solar energy technology, and already they're, uh, they're taking a big chunk of uh, wind power. In, the, in San Francisco, they will be bringing online in 2013 um, space-based solar power. I don't know if you've heard much about that. Uh, and um, that seems fascinating to me where they'll actually be transferring solar energy from an orbital position down to the Bay Area and putting it onto the grid. I don't know how they're doing it. They're, they're just reflecting the solar radiation, are they? No, they How do you transmit the energy through space? Through, through microwaves somehow. Oh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not totally familiar with the technology, but I do know that they, I think, and I think they're doing it in conjunction with NASA. Well, one thing we have to remember, well, that yeah, sounds fascinating, but one thing we have to remember is that if we don't get really serious about greenhouse gas emissions in the, ne- in the next five to ten years, then we're screwed. Uh, so... Investing in grand new technologies that'll, you know, U-Butte technologies that'll come along in 30 years' time to save that, it'll be too late. Uh, so well, we actually have the technologies now. They're more They're expensive, expensive than coal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we just have to make that decision. Okay, so three things the person in the street in Australia or America can do to try to bring about change. Do you have any, is it just vo- literally as simple as, as lobby and vote for the right people? Well, yeah, I mean, look, we can all ring up our electricity retailers and say, please switch me over to green power. You know, we can all think about our transportation and sharply reduce our greenhouse gas emissions that way, uh, or um, invest in energy efficiency in our houses. But in the end, the thing that's really going to matter is if we become citizens mm. rather than consumers. Participatory democracy. Indeed, if we be get active in all sorts of ways that you can be active, join an environment group. Join Twitter and talk on Twitter. <laughs> I wish you listener could have just seen Clive's face when I when I mentioned Twitter. But surely that is participatory democracy, Look. and it is okay. We we won't open that uh, that door. I know. I know. We're nearly out of time. Yeah, we are about out of time. But look. Be engaged, you know, and there are lots of different ways that people can be engaged politically, join groups, uh, be active, write your MP, write a letter, do something. And don't worry so much about the money. You only need 40K a year to reach. That's that's all it can add to your happiness. Well, and some of the happiest people I know, the most contented, the ones that lead the most fulfilling lives aren't those who desperately aspire for more money. They, they've listened to the, you know, the Greek philosopher, the ancient Greek philosophers who said uh, it, it, the, what, what matters is, is the gap between uh, what you have and what you want. Uh, we see that gap and say, well, I must have more. The Greeks would say, well, no, the answer is to want less. Mm. Well, on that note, Professor Clive Hamilton, author and uh, yeah, uh, interesting, interesting philosopher. I really appreciate your time on the, on the show, on the, on the podcast. Um, tell us quickly again um, the name of your upcoming book. 
Earthmasters, the dawn of the age of climate engineering, out in late February, early March. Kindle version or only print? Uh, no, I'm sure it'll be in Kindle as well. Okay, I look, I look forward to reading that and I really appreciate your time on, on our It's a Monkey podcast. Pleasure. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, I mean, we love to talk about the meta issues, the big issues. Um, I could have spoken to Clive for hours. Hmm. I think we can probably talk about that chat for hours. There were all sorts of very big themes that were brought up in that talk. Um, I've made quite a few, quite a few notes here. Wow, where to start? Um, we can start at. Uh, you, you didn't um, after listen, after talking to him. You didn't feel a need to uh, no longer purchase your new TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, consumerism, uh, consumerism is not dead yet. Well, I mean. I don't totally agree with him, you know. I mean, I, I found that that first half of the conversation really fascinating, where he spoke about in times gone by historically, a lot of companies didn't compete based on innovation; they competed on on other elements such as economies of scale, or mm. um, you know. And I think in today's day and age, and I, and maybe that's what you know the the ninety nine percent and the Occupy Wall Street. Maybe part of what they're trying to say is they want companies to compete properly. But if companies are competing based on vested interests and politics and nepotism, that is highly problematic. Hmm. Maybe the yeah, just the consumers are looking for more options. You know, companies that are more you know environmentally friendly or you know future caring companies that care more about the future. Well. I mean, I find a, a lot of what Clive has to say fascinating. Clearly a very smart person who thinks a lot about these issues. Where I would like to disagree somewhat is that I think even us in the industry, in technology, even we don't, under S- don't even value the impact that innovation has had on the quality of our lives. Mm-hmm. Whether it's healthcare, medical care, ability to travel, um, raising our standard of living, you know, we all we all live like Roman kings in the Western world. We really, really do. We've all got access to cars and hot water and entertainment and healthcare and you know, cheap different types of clothes. And I'm not saying I do take his point that that is only half of the equation of contentment and happiness. And dare I use the word enlightenment? And I think that is a very valuable point that he makes, that we have to keep things in context and just um, you know, be aware that the human experience is a lot bigger than those things at the same time. And I think that's a very valuable discussion to have. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I guess if you, if you do accept that the... I, I mean, on one hand, it's... it's, it's um, you know, invigorating to, to sort of realize, you know, those sort of minimum levels of income for happiness, you know, if you want to hit the 40k or 80k mark, whatever it is, you know, your happiness doesn't increase, you know, that's, I guess, you know, rewarding in some sense, you don't feel 
like you know being any more successful is going to really change your life that much but um on the other hand you know maybe that just says you know more about the human condition you know, humans aren't necessarily going to be happier if they if they get more but um and you know when when external things change you know our our mental state doesn't really change that much but does that mean we shouldn't keep you know aiming for bigger things you know if we're going to be unhappy we might as well be rich and unhappy so but not only that i mean i think this whole concept this whole fascination with happiness mm. you know it's it's when i wake up in the morning i don't that's not my reason for existence to aim to be happy i aim to be i, I aim I don't want to be unhappy, mm. but I'm not striving for happiness. I wouldn't actually even use that adjective. I would use contentment, challenge, satisfaction, fulfillment. Um, contentment is much more sustainable than happiness. Happiness, you know, it's got a bit of a sort of um, hedonistic type of, um, you know, tone and, um, or, or sort of... Um, it does, you know. Comments, you have you know. to, um, you have to keep feeding it. Really, it's you know, you end up sort of going through. You know, you can you can be very happy, but you tend to sort of have sort of lows afterwards. It becomes a bit like a drug. You know, you have to sort of keep searching for the next high. Whereas if you're aiming for just sort of a, you know, contentment, then it's a very different thing that you make. It's different, very different structure you have to your life. I think though, innovation and 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 competition and growth is important and is necessary and has given us a lot of the wonderful things that we can enjoy and experience in today's society. Um, so um, I do agree with his comments on that. We have to focus on what does advance social well-being, not just on GDP. I think that has been lost over the last few years. Yeah. You know, and and I do agree with that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in the theories of happiness. There are some fascinating books about theories of happiness, and which I spoke about in the interview with him about some of this research. And if you can become familiar with some of this research, you can actually choose certain choices in mm. life, having this awareness um, around these issues. And and they have done a lot of studies, so you can sort of in effect try to advance your own social well-being by smart decisions and not get caught up we also have to take personal responsibility you know we also have to we can sidestep the crazy consumerist type to some degree Mm -hmm. yeah if you when you when you have a knowledge of it it kind of gives you a a mental tool set i guess to kind of address these problems and um and yeah i mean if if there was better education if if our, our culture focused on giving people those tools you know we might be in a we might be in a better place than uh, than if you know the economic uh, focus was the the primary one. I know a lot of Americans don't like big governments and government involvement, but I certainly see this as an area. If government is to be involved in something in- intelligently, is stimulating that which advances the social well-being, if anything. Mm. And I think the Australian government is pretty good at that. I see all sorts of initiatives where, if it's even just giving grants to community organizations and recognizing people that spend a large amount of time in charitable endeavors. And I think Australia is actually pretty good. We've got a very good middle class, a very solid middle class. The gap between rich and poor is pretty small. And I think Australia is probably uh, in many ways on the right track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're definitely one of the 
Yeah, the more balanced uh, Western country is one of the more balanced first world countries. So. We just need payment solutions, right? For online, <laughs> like like we got no payment solutions. Can't, or take, we can't take money from the rest of the world. Maybe that's <sighs> maybe that's our benefit. Maybe that's why we're so so balanced. <laughs> Gee, man, get the money in. All these years later, and we still have so limited options. I did though tweet um, one of the people at Stripe. I think mm-hmm. I sent you. I think I sent you a copy of it, and I asked her, um, you know, any plans to come to Australia? And they said definitely on the card. And I know there are some other companies like Braintree and and others. And of course, we do have PayPal, so we we can't complain too much. But no. um, we we it, there's definitely a layer of competition that's missing in the um, in the payment side of things in Australia. Anyway, I think I think uh, I think. That's it. That's it for 2012. Starting out 2013, episode number 11, we are going to have another very special guest, CEO and founder of Evernote, Phil Leiben. Evernote's fantastic product. And even more important than that, Phil is a fascinating entrepreneur, fascinating leader, fascinating manager. I think he's going to be someone to watch in Silicon Valley over the next 10, 20 years. Absolutely, has some very innovative and uh, and bold ideas, and uh, yeah, def- definitely one to watch. Yeah, and he's an all round nice guy. So, um, starting um, next year, next year we are going to keep the um, every two weeks. Um, I'm not exactly sure when the first podcast um, it will kick off round about mid January sometime. We love hearing from you. Email us at. Um, podcast at itsamonkey.com you can also tweet us at monkey podcast we also have a facebook page you know all the ways to get hold of us you can also comment on um, the the website if you are listening on itunes you can pop on back to the website itsamonkey.com and comment we'd love your thoughts on some of the these very uh, interesting discussion we had with professor clive Ham- hamilton today and we'd also love to know what uh, you'd like to hear in the new year Please have a safe and happy, dare I use it, <laughs> festive season. Thanks for all the support. If you are a managed flood or check dog user, we do appreciate all your support. We've got some great um, features and innovations coming out in, in our products over the next year. And um, James, do you have uh, anything planned for the break? Oh, a lot of rest. <laughs> And some occasional happiness moments. <laughs> some occasional, some moments of happiness. Ones that I probably shouldn't be doing. Then. <laughs> hey, we should get, we should talk about, you know, we'll get someone who's an expert in the theory of happiness. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a fascinating topic. Um, so, James, we'll see you in 2013. Until next year. Yep. Until next year. Thanks for listening us, to us on the It's a Monkey podcast. Bye from James Peter and Kevin Garber. Bye. Bye.